0: Tomas Lopez uh, was a lifeguard at Hollandale beach in Florida. One day he was on duty when some frantic swimmers came over and told him that there was a man who'd gone beyond the boundaries of safe swimming, ignored the signs and said, don't swim out here. If you do, you're at your own risk and was drowning. So Lopez went into action right away. And with the help of some of the other swimmers at the beach, he was able to pull this man on shore. They called the paramedics, they did CPR, and he saved the man's life. When he went to turn in the incident report, he was shocked because he was fired. You say, what? mean he was fired for saving a life? Yes, he was fired for saving a life. The company that ran the lifeguards said that the signs were posted. It was very clear. If you go past this point, you're on your own. And if you drown, that's, that's your choice. And so they fired Lopez for going past those boundaries and rescuing that man. Well, this created quite a stir and six other lifeguards that worked for the same company came to Tomas Lopez's side and said to the media and said to the company, look, if we had been on duty that day, we would have done the same thing. We would have swam past that sign, rescued that man. You guys owe him an apology. And you know what the company did? They fired those six lifeguards as well. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? What would you do? Would you go and break company policy to rescue a drowning life knowing you're going to get fired and lose your paycheck? Or would you stand there and go, yep, he's drowning, but he saw the sign. He knows better. I'm not losing my job over this. It's too bad. Well, I would like to think that I wouldn't care about a paycheck. I would go out there and rescue this man, even if he crossed the boundaries and was where he shouldn't have been. And I'm guessing you would do the same thing too. Hey, I want to welcome you to the last message in our series that we've been in for several weeks now called, What in the World is Going On? Our Lord's Words, Jesus' Words on the Future. We've heard Jesus say a lot. We've tried to explore. Some things have been easy to understand. Some things are more challenging about the future. And a lot of things we're just going to have to wait and watch and see. But Jesus made one thing very clear to everybody, believers and unbelievers alike, that in the last days, which, remember, began the moment Jesus ascended to the Father and will end when he returns. We just don't know where we are in that continuum of the last days. But he said in the last days, there's going to be such things as false messiahs, wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be famines, there's going to be tribulation of all kinds. And then Jesus narrowed it down and said to his followers, I also want you to know that there's going to be persecution. You, as my followers, are going to be persecuted for your faith in me. And Jesus' words were absolutely correct to this very day. Let's look at some of those words that Jesus spoke about the persecution that his followers would face in every generation, including yours and mine. They come from John chapter five, beginning at verse 19. Jesus said, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. See, Christ saves us out of the world, sends us back into the world as his agents. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you, Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. See, for the moment Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. And I'll always be with you from that moment that Jesus said, go out and practice and proclaim the faith. There have been those who have opposed the work of Christ. Think about it as a lifeguard. When you go past the cultural norms and you see people drowning out there spiritually, spiritually, and you proclaim the truth to them that the culture said isn't the truth, that the culture doesn't like being the truth, you're going to get fired. (laughs) You're going to get persecuted. How wide would this persecution be? Well, I came across this uh, graphic from Voice of the Martyrs, and it shows what's going on in much of the world today. You can see the darker and the grayer parts identified as both areas where the faith is restricted in areas that are hostile to the faith. And I've had the privilege of visiting many of these places. And as we look at this map, it's covered by a lot of hatred, if you think about it. There are a lot of people who are against Christ and those who follow Christ. There are people today, men and women and young people, that I personally know, that we support, that we're ministering to, that we reach out to as a church who risk their lives every day for Jesus. They risk their lives by claiming to be Christians. They really risk their lives by telling others how to become Christians. They're always swimming beyond the cultural bounds trying to rescue people who are drowning and they're, quote, fired for it. They're ostracized. They're jailed. They're even beaten and killed for sharing their faith. You know, as North Americans, we look at a map like that and And it grieves our heart. We pray for those men and those women and those young people. And we're so thankful for the freedom that we have as a nation to practice our religion and to proclaim our religion. But the reality, I think, that's beginning to hit a lot of us is that we're beginning to feel a bit of persecution. We're beginning to feel a bit of a pushback from the culture. Now, it is nothing like what many other parts of the world face. And so I'm not in any way trying to say that we know just what it's like you know, for them, because of what we're experiencing. However, I do believe we are going to see ratcheted increase in persecution in our own nation, in our own time, and certainly in the time of our children and our grandchildren. Why is that? Why is it that our culture is growing more hostile toward the practice and promotion of the Christian faith? Why is it that your children and grandchildren who are attending public schools are facing increased pressure to conform to cultural standards rather than biblical standards? And why is it that it's no longer acceptable to agree to disagree on certain moral issues? And why is it that a nation that was founded on Judeo-Christian principles that has been far from a perfect nation, I know that, there is no perfect nation. And I know we've abused God's word at times and we've abused the freedom he's given us. But still, why is it a nation founded on Judeo-Christian principles is turning around and seemingly rejecting that on a political platform and culturally speaking? Well, no one has helped me understand this better than a man by the name of Dr. Carl Truman, Dr. Carl Truman is a believer. He is an intellect. He's a scholar. He teaches Bible and religion at Gross City College in Pennsylvania. And he actually held a very important and prestigious position at Princeton University as well for a time. He's an esteemed church historian. And he's written a book that has helped me tremendously. The name of the book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Dr. Carl Truman. Now, I'll warn you, it's 400 pages long. It is an academic kind of book. It is not an easy read. But to me, he's done the best job of giving an analysis as to why we're in the place we are in in America today and why we as believers are facing increasing hostility moving toward outright persecution. In fact, I contacted Dr. Truman and uh, let him know how much the book had impressed me and was asking him if there were other kinds of notes and things he could share with me uh, so that I could condense it all into this talk. And he was very gracious in sharing uh, some of his notes with me. And so I want to give credit to him; credit is due. And the other thing I want you to know is that, is that what I'm sharing with you is not, is not my, my opinion, It is not uh, some wild uh, vision, you know, that some televangelist had. It is not some conspiracy. This is coming from an academic, an intellect, a scholar, a researcher. And of course, I'm adding scripture to this and my own personal thoughts and ideas as well as God has been stirring in my heart now for several months on this issue. But I want you to see what is happening and why it's happening because unless we do, we can't, we can't change anything. We can't, we can't help our kids. We can't help our grandkids. We can't stay strong as a church, and we can't make a difference in the culture. So let's get started. Dr. Truman says there are basically three reasons why, as Orthodox believers, we see things going terribly wrong in our culture and in our nation. The first thing is this. The belief that human flourishing is found in an inner sense of well-being. Now, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with human flourishing. We all want to flourish, right? What we're dealing with here, though, is the source of that flourishing, that it comes from an inner sense of well-being. So I did a little investigation as to, you know, what do people mean when they talk about human flourishing? And I found out that Harvard actually has a human flourishing program. And so I looked into it and they have five uh, attributes of what it means to flourish as a human being. Here they are very quickly. One is happiness and life satisfaction, number two, mental and physical health, number three, meaning and purpose, number four, character and virtue, and number five, close social relationships now I don't know about you but I, I like those five and and I think if I had all five going on in my life and if you had all five going on in your life you would have that sense as well of, of flourishing but the question becomes if this flourishing comes out of my inner sense of well-being well what gives me that inner sense of well-being where do I where do I get that from? What informs that? How do I arrive at that place? And, and as you're going to see in the next couple of points, that's where, that's where things are going wrong in our culture. So look at number two. Another reason why things seem so terribly wrong to those who have a biblical worldview is the belief that one should be able to act outwardly as one feels inwardly. Now think about that for a moment. Honestly, I don't always want people to act outwardly the way they're feeling inwardly. And I don't actually want to always act outwardly the way I'm feeling inwardly. How about you? Let's take a look at his third reason why we're just struggling with what's going on from a biblical biblical perspective. It is the belief that who you are should largely be a matter of personal choice not the result of external pressure or imposition from something or someone else. Now, to kind of bring this into into real total focus, let me just use a a simple illustration that came to my mind. Think about a parent who um, decides to raise their child with the idea that, you know, I want my child to be able to have anything they want. I want my child to be able to do anything they desire. And my goal in life is to not put roadblocks in the way of their desires and what they want to be and what they want to do. But my goal in life is to take the roadblocks out of the way. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you think that child is going to turn out? And what do you think it's going to be like for you as a parent? It is not a pretty picture, is it? Well, magnify that thing now and think about a culture that's being driven with that same mindset and that same attitude. And you begin to get a picture of why it just feels like things aren't right. In fact, you don't even have to be an Orthodox Christian. You don't even have to be a believer in the Bible and sense that there is something wrong with this world. Like the question asks, what in the world is going on? Well, a lot of what is going on is being fed by this kind of mindset, this kind of attitude that I need to be kind of like, you know, like my authentic self. Well, the Bible tells us that that part of our life, our authentic self is not a pretty picture. It is not something that should be unleashed by the billions on the world. Look at these familiar words that God spoke to his prophet Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? I want you to think about that with me for just a moment. Think about your own heart. Honestly, if you know your own heart well, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it can be desperately wicked. I don't always act, and thank God I don't always act on what's in my heart or what's in my mind. But you and I both know that things are not well with our, quote, authentic self. Look what Jesus said. He said in Mark chapter seven, verse 20, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. And that's some of the stuff that, you know, drove people to hate Jesus and and crucify him. I mean, the Pharisees who consider themselves so righteousness, in essence, what he's saying is, you know, your righteousness is like filthy rags in comparison to the righteousness of God himself. For God desires us to be righteous like he is, and none of us are are capable of being that. And so when when you try to run a world without God, without a moral code, without an outside force and imposition, so to speak, you're asking for trouble. Now, I wanna I want to share uh, a couple of drawings with you. Uh, these come from a man by the name of Philip Reif. And uh, he's probably the greatest American sociologist we've ever had. He died in 2006. He puts them in word form. I'm just gonna draw it out because it's easier for me to understand. But I tell you what, even though he was not a believer, he was a, he was a mighty intellect, he gave us kind of a gift as Christians of understanding the world and what's going on and how important our faith is. He talks about three cultural worlds. Now, these aren't separate worlds in existence. Think of these as, as three worlds in, in kind of a timeline. He talks about one world. And, and what we'll do is we'll call this world the, the pagan world, the pagan world. And we'll put a person in the pagan world here. And this person in the pagan world believes in gods, believes in legends, believes in myths. And even though these gods and these myths aren't always real moral, they give a sense to this pagan of how to live their life. So the gods and their laws, and their rules, and their ways govern how the pagan exists. My parents saw this amongst the Stone Age people. Uh, you can see this in Greek uh, uh, mythology as well, and all the myths that exist. And I, and I know a lot of the Greek gods were very immoral and their ways, were you know crazy because they're just human personifications. But they offered a sense of structure. They offered a sense of what was permissible and what was prohibited. Then he says you come into a second kind of world. And this is not a world of gods, but is a world of the God, that is monotheism, of which Christianity, I'll abbreviate, is the greatest example. And so we'll draw our Christian as our example of a monotheist. All right. We believe in one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, in essence, three three distinct personalities. And Our belief in the God of the Bible has influenced Western thought more than anything else. Our laws, for instance, as a nation uh, of our country, have been greatly influenced by God's word, God's revelation, God's will in the scriptures. And so we find ourselves governed then from the outside, in our case as Christians, from God and his word. Well what Rife goes on to say is that there is a third world that has emerged. And this third world is the world is the world of self. Is the world of self. It's the world of me. All right. And this world, he says, is no longer governed by any outside force. We deny the outside force. This world is governed by me. This world justifies itself by me. I justify myself by myself. And what he says is that what this amounts to, his term is death works. What this amounts to is is the death of culture. It's the death of humanity. He says to live like this, to have a world like this you end up with an uprising toward all the other worlds. Makes sense, doesn't it? If I'm going to justify myself by myself, I've got to get rid of any idea of an outside force, an outside code, an outside moral that's influencing my life. And that's what we are beginning to see ourselves in the throes of in our own culture. This idea of defiance, this idea of opposition toward the oppression of others who are pushing on us their ideas, their theology, their God, their way. That's how the culture feels. The culture feels like that has to be thrown off so we can be our authentic self. But the problem is, we've learned from the scriptures that our authentic self is sinful and evil. It is corrupt. It leads to destruction. It leads to chaos. It leads to pain. We need an outside compass. We need an outside force. And that compass is the word of God. And that force is God, is God himself. And this is where we're beginning to see, at least in our country, we're beginning to see a real push, a real sense of oppression, a growing sense of persecution because of things that are taking place here. Now, I want to read to you something that Reif wrote. It goes like this. He said, no culture... Has never preserved itself where it is not a registration of sacred order. In other words, no culture has preserved itself where where it hasn't had some sense of order, sacredness outside overruling it. There, cultures have not survived. The third culture notion of a culture that persists independent of all sacred orders is unprecedented in human history. In other words, we have not ever seen this before. And Reif was present in this. He, he saw what was coming. And he knew that if we stayed on this trajectory, it was going to lead to all manner of chaos and trouble, which begs an important question. And the question that begs is, how, how did we ever get here? And by the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a paradox to freedom. Think about this with me for a moment. In freedom, right, when we say, you're free to be or do what you want to do. You can abuse your freedom to the point that you have to have an outside force come in or you end up with absolute lawlessness and chaos. The question is, who's that influence going to be? We'll get to that in just a moment. But what I want to do is I want to answer the question, how did we ever get here? Because it didn't happen overnight. And I just want to take you on a brief philosophical history lesson. I don't want to lose you or bore you, so hang in there with me. But I want you to see this is something that's been coming for a long time. We are the frog in the kettle. The heat has been turned up very gradually. We don't even know it. It didn't happen last year. It didn't happen this last election cycle. This has been coming for a long time. And it was generated because the enemy, you know, Satan is the god of lies. It has been generated by intellect. Some you've heard about probably in college or in graduate school. Some you've never heard about. have no clue who they are. But they have taken over by their philosophy, by their ideology, the social imagination of the world. And especially our culture. We don't even know it. How we become captive to their ideas. So I'm going to introduce a few of them to you. And I'm, this is just a few of many, all right? I Let's to start with this guy. His name is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. All right, he was a Genevan philosopher, composer, writer, lived in the 1700s. And he had this, he had this idea that he spread amongst the intellectuals of his day uh, uh, in the Romantic period that, that the self needs to be able to express itself without any alien forces being imposed on it by the society that what society needs is to rightly express its emotions and its feelings you not have the culture judging individuals and putting on individuals imposing on them rules and religion and guidelines that the problem with the world is God and the Bible and Christians and the sense of marriage and the sense of purpose, and the sense of meaning. This is the kind of fire that he lit, that, that ravished among the intellectuals of his days, the begin, things that began to think and experience and uh, experiment with and talk about and teach in the upper echelons of, of academia and it's trickled its way down over time. It led to philosophers, some famous, some not so famous, who began to discuss things like, how do I know I'm a conscious being? Is my consciousness of myself and the world around me, is that something that comes from within me? Am I the source of the consciousness of what's around me? Or is my source, as Hegel says, of my consciousness from you? Do I know myself by how you know me? do you see where that's going? If true consciousness is how I feel and think about myself, and if my consciousness is influenced by how you feel and think about me, are you feeling or thinking about me in any way that judges me? And if you are, then I need to police your words. I need to create structure whereby you can't ever say anything affects how I see myself or feel about myself. No matter how you express it, whether in love or in hate or in anger, what's important is how I feel about me and my ability to express me. Let's move on to another guy. You've heard of him. How about Charles Darwin? You know, his concept of evolution led to really, if you think about it, it, it took away human exceptionalism. It just took that away from us. It kind of made us like all the other all the other creatures. Kind of removed that spiritual dynamic. Kind of fed the idea that it's survivor of, of the fittest. And with that came this mindset again of it's all it's all about me. It's about what I can do to better myself. And how dare you do something to keep me from being all that I want to be. How dare you oppress me? Move on to another gentleman by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche probably has had the most influence on philosophers, social scientists, scientists, theologians, artists, etc. He had the whole concept that God is dead. God is dead. He saw God as as wicked. He saw God as one who makes everyone weak, who keeps everybody suppressed and down and religion along with it. That we should be able to live our lives as we please and have this great freedom. That takes us then to another guy by the name of Sigmund Freud. Now a lot of Freud's theories have been debunked since his days, but there's one that has grabbed the imagination of the world. And that is this idea that at our core, we are sexual beings. From from infancy onward, we are sexual beings. And his ideology and his thoughts and his philosophy and his teaching has led to concepts that are now widely embraced. Let's look at three of them. Number one, human flourishing in its ideal form is identical with sexual satisfaction. So this concept of human, human flourishing is about me being sexually satisfied, whatever that means for me. Number two, sex is a matter of identity and not primarily activity. And number three, sex is something you are and not something that you do. And this is this is everywhere. This is in the media. This is in politics. You see it in some religion. I mean, this is. in in every form and fashion that you can think about, we are sex-obsessed as a nation. We see ourselves that way. It has come to define who we are and all the things that that go with that. Now, God created us sexual beings but God from the outside has imposed on us for our own sake, guidelines on how that sexuality is to be lived and to be practiced. But we live in a culture that wants to push off what God has said and what God has done. And as I was thinking about these things, it reminded me of the story in Genesis 11 when the people who are of one language decided to go and build a tower to the sky. Remember those words? Genesis chapter 11 says they began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were use instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered over or all over the world. Now, if you look at their words carefully, in essence, what they were saying is, let's create our own Eden. I mean, Ezekiel tells us that that while the Garden of Eden was a garden, it was also a mountain. So we're going to create our own Eden, our own mountain, and we are going to rule ourselves. We will find human beings like us to govern us so that we can experience living life on our own terms, in essence, is what they were saying. And that's what's happening again today. We are hell bent on building our own Eden, our own mountain, so to speak, in the face of God, so to speak, like a raised fist to God to say, we don't need your outside influence on us. We will live life on our own terms. So that leaves the question then, what does that bring us to? What are the results of that kind of a mindset, that kind of an attitude in the culture? I go to my friend, Carl Truman, and I want to read you something that he says, which is quite profound. He says in his writings that when we had this idea, all right, that religion is oppressive, it can only eventually lead to persecution. Listen to what he says behaviors that Christianity regards as illegitimate are now made into an identity society regards as legitimate and therefore requires all its citizens to recognize for the common good. So for example, to object to aberrant or aberrant forms of sexuality ceases to be merely to object to certain sexual practices or proclivities. It becomes the denial of the selfhood of another an act of political violence that makes Christianity not simply implausible but downright morally offensive, even politically seditious because it seems to threaten the common good. Listen carefully. When the central moral teachings of Christianity become identified with acts of psychological violence and harm, we can expect religious freedom to become far more restricted. So how then in this cauldron that we're in these days of our culture should we respond? And that's what I want to wrap up with, all right? I hope what you've seen so far is how we've gotten to where we are today and what is fueling what we see as wrong in our world today. Number one, recognize the depth and nature of the challenge that we are facing this isn't some small thing. For instance, this is not a superficial blip or momentary aberration of American culture, Truman says. this is a big deal, it's here to stay for a while. Next, the fewer people who consider religion an important part of their lives, the fewer people will care about religious freedom. That's huge. Next. The modern view of self is the result of a long and comprehensive revolution. It cannot be supplanted until an equally comprehensive revolution takes its place. Next, a world where Orthodox Christianity is considered not just implausible, but also immoral, is a world that we will need to navigate in a manner perhaps not seen since the second century. Talk about the early church. The early church swam out of bounds to rescue people. And they were arrested for it. They were, they were imprisoned for it. They were beaten for it. They were put to death for it. But do you know that the second century church turned the world upside down? That in the midst of all that, it actually thrived and grew? The church didn't get in trouble until it cozied up with the state. Constantine and afterwards is when corruption settled in. So the days ahead don't necessarily have to be bad days. They may be bad days in terms of how we're treated and talked about, but they can be great days of spiritual thriving. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Next. The church has been here before and it thrived. The early church in the second century A.D. All right. So we've set that out. Number two, right? Know what you believe and believe what you know. We've been talking about that over and over again. It's why we're, you know, we're ramping up our next-gen ministry. So we brought in Dr. Ken Castor to help us build cohesiveness from the nursery all the way through college. We want our students, we want our parents to know what they believe and believe what they know and be able to defend their faith against these ideas that are coming our way, against these questions about Christianity, about the Bible, about who Jesus is. See, we live in a world that wants to do one of two things. He wants to either neuter God, so to speak, right? kind of make God more culturally accepted, or just get rid of God altogether. But any time you try to change God into a mascot for your ideology or just get rid of God, you create a vacuum that has to be filled with someone or something else that becomes God. Otherwise, you end up in utter chaos. Eventually, somebody has to come into the vacuum and put the law down because you cannot have people living by their emotions, by their desires only. Next, Don't get preoccupied with the symptoms of a self-centered world. And I think we do that all the time as Christians. What do I mean by that? Don't get preoccupied with all the sexual aberrations that we see going on today, all right? It's just, it's not, it's not worth it. It's just a symptom of a deeper problem. Don't get all caught up with the cancel culture and all caught up with critical race theory and all uh, caught up with QAnon and, and all these things that seem to occupy our minds and our ideas and our texting and our emails and our books and magazines and on and on it goes. Those are symptoms. We've got to get to the heart of the problem. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Number four, don't become inward focused or hateful towards the culture. It doesn't do any good. We are supposed to love the world like Jesus did, and he gave his life. That should be a G. He gave his life that whosoever believes will not drown. That's my paraphrase. Keep it up with our, our opening illustration, all right? that whosoever believes will not drown but have everlasting life. Can't hate this world, folks. We can't circle the wagons against the world. We've got to go into it. We've got to swim out of bounds. Knowing we might get fired for it because people need Christ. Next. Come to know others as Christ knows them. Individuals created in the image of God and treat them that way. That's huge. See, that's the real issue. Get past the symptoms. We've got to get to know people and, and we've got to let them know when, when we treat them the way Christ would treat them, that's when they really flourish. Because all of us want to be loved. And all of us want to know that, that, that we came from someone, something greater than ourselves, more than just our parents, and we did. His name is God. God created us in His image, and He loves us. And I don't know about you, but I have been so challenged lately, and I'm working on this, to start seeing people the way Jesus sees them. Start behaving toward people the way Jesus behaved toward them. Speak to them the way Jesus would speak to them, no matter how different they are from me. Because when it's all said and done, I'm a sinner just like everybody else. The only difference is, God found me and changed me. He sent me back to find others like me for God to change them too. That's what he's called us to do. Number six, be a loyal subject to the state to the extent that loyalty to the state and Christ are compatible. Number seven, accept that you'll be persecuted when you cannot be loyal to the state because it contradicts Christ. Number eight, don't forsake meeting together with other believers as a church. We need that desperately these days to hold each other accountable and build each other up. And I'm praying and hoping that we can regather in greater numbers and greater numbers soon. I'm hoping and praying that we'll spawn off many micro churches and communities and households and businesses where you can gather as a church if that's where you want to be. But don't live isolated. Don't live alone in the faith. You'll be overcome. You'll be discouraged. You'll be deceived. We need each other. And you know what? We need each other so we can present a picture to the world that is better than what the world is seeking. Because sometimes I think the world is seeking a different way because they've looked at the church. And honestly, honestly, these last few years, we have not given them something to be excited about. want to be a part of. With all our moral failures, all our political arguments, all our name-callings, all the hatred that's been going on, man, the devil's done a number on us. We need to repent, step away from that, and become the church that Christ always envisioned us to be. Number nine, our greatest witness is when we remain faithful to the message of Christ and flourish flourish, there it is, and flourish in Christian community. That's what God calls us to. That's what he calls us to be, to be his witnesses. You see, Philip Reif talked about three worlds. I think there's a fourth world. And I think that fourth world is the kingdom of God established in our hearts lived out within the body of Christ called the church that tastes a little bit like heaven on earth. It's far greater than anything any human intellect, philosopher, theologian, whatever can come up with. That's what the world is desperate for. And I'm just wondering if God is leading us into a time of hardship, of persecution, allowing us to go there to refine us to withdraw us from the milk of the world to the meat of God's word, to the presence of his spirit, to go back once again into the world. Be that hope that it's so desperately looking for. This is an opportunity for us not to back down, It's an opportunity for us to change the world around us. Are you with me? Are you with me? If you are, then I want you to stay with me into our next series. Because in our next series, we're gonna talk about how to find purpose in uncertainty. We're gonna be looking at the life of Joseph. If anybody faced uncertainty, it was Joseph. If anybody lived in a pagan culture, it was Joseph. And yet Joseph rose up to be the second most powerful man in the world. I'm not saying you're going to rise up to be the second most powerful man or woman in the world. But I believe that God has a purpose for you and me in these days. And we're going to uncover that together in a profound way. Let's pray. Father God, we've covered a lot of material today. It's not been the typical message. It's been filled with a lot of information. I pray, God, that you would allow only the right things to be distilled and to settle in our minds and our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to walk away and be able to say, this is what's wrong with the world. I get it. And this is how I have to behave and believe. And then, Lord, help us to go away, not with a sense of fear, but with a sense of hope. God, you took a church that was persecuted in the second century and did tremendous things with it. Imagine what you could do here. All around our world, Lord, we are hearing of you doing great things through your church. Father, I just thank you for what you're doing in Iran right now where there are hundreds and thousands of Bible studies and lives being changed in a regime that is so anti-Christ. Thank you for what you're doing in other countries like China and other places in the world, oh God, where Christians are so oppressed. But the church is flourishing. God, I just pray, continue your great work and help us to be part of that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend.